fight all night with Wingate. Hey, listen, you know, um, I, uh, I hate to uh, bring up something that's obviously so leading, but, uh, well, uh, we have all known about the opposite sex for some time. Now, I, I, uh, I bring this up uh, not, not through any fear of trepidation of, uh, let's say, or trepidation of recriminations in that jazz. I do bring it up, though, because... Uh, uh, it is an absolute fact. Now, I think a lot of this, a lot of the mythology that uh, has been put out about the opposite sex is one of those things that we all have to face. And uh, since we're about to face this tonight, I'd like to salute a truly talented operator tonight who has made of the game of love a true sport of the chase, la chasse. And that, uh, please, if you'll uh, give me a little of this, a uh, uh, little of that mood music, please. <laughs> yeah. We all know, and if we're going to honestly admit it, that love is far more of a comedy than it is a tragedy. Of course, you've got to have a certain amount of perspective to understand comedy. So a guy falling downstairs, an endless flight of stairs, an endless flight of stairs of passion, uh, rarely recognizes that to the onlookers, he is a figure of uh, abject humor. So please. <laughs> I just wonder how many guys are listening tonight that have made themselves into absolute slobs over a chick. 
who have, who have been otherwise intelligent, reliable, walking around intelligent human beings. And I might say that the reverse also occurs with startling frequency. And today we would like to salute an unknown, disguised, mysterious operator who uh, just comes from a place called the United States. It's all he was known. He never said exactly where from, just the United States. That's the kind of anonymity, anonymity you need in the sort of fast and loose game he was playing. Hold it there. Oh, that's it. That's it. That. Uh, Kingston, Jamaica. Have you ever been to Jamaica? Well, they've got an airport in Jamaica, and the airport is much more uh, obvious than the kind of airports we've got here in the United States. I mean, you go to uh, uh, JFK, you go to LaGuardia, and there's 28 million people and 400,000 desks, and there's there's millions of people moving in and out. But Jamaica, the airport, is kind of like set off by itself. Now listen carefully, this is part of the story. It's a very public airport. If you got in a fist fight in the Jamaica airport, they would know about it all over the Caribbean in an hour. Well, a couple of days ago, I will repeat the story as it comes. I do not make the news, I only report it. The 20 women dressed in their finest, 20, count that, 20, began arriving two hours before the flight from the United States was due at the Jamaican International Airport in Kingston. The women, ranging in age from 26 to 40, gradually discovered that they were all waiting for the same man on the same plane for the same reason. <laughs> Would you please give me a little, uh, uh, a little of that uh, mood music Al, please, just just to whatever you've got. It matters not, really, Al, please. It's all part of the same bolt of cloth. It's all a yard wide. You can cut your pattern any way you want. Yes, he had promised marriage to each one of them. All 20 of them arrived. The scene turned to one of anguish as they ended up throwing themselves into each other's arms in tears in the middle of the airport waiting room in Kingston, Jamaica. The man, described only as an American citizen whose name was not disclosed by Jamaican authorities, never showed up on the flight. <laughs> oh, I mean... It says like right out of a Peter Ustinoff movie, doesn't it? And so it came to pass in the island of Concordia, the first to become suspicious were airline employees. They noticed the parade of women coming to the counter, seemingly hundreds of them, all asking for the same man. Jamaican authorities said that the men had carried on a relationship, that's the way they put it in Jamaica, you know, with all of the women. And it promised all of them that he was about to marry them. And it told them what flight he was arriving. Some of the uh, jilted women said Friday that they were convinced that the man actually had arrived on the plane wearing a clever disguise. Then picked the one he wanted and took off for the hills. <laughs> oh, that's me. Oh, love, oh, love. You caused it all to come about. You provided Shakespeare with everything he ever wrote, one way or another. My God, what would we have ever done? Hey, hold it there. Hey, have you ever thought about that, you know? You know that there's a theory 
And uh, I, I, I really shouldn't bring this kind of stuff into the discussion here because it has a certain amount of uh, overtones. Uh, but uh, let's let's face it. I mean, you know, it's the middle of the summer. The, uh, yeah, the kids are all gone. I mean, that's one of the great things about being on the air in the summertime. You ever thought about that? First of all, every every major executive is on the fantail of somebody else's yacht, hundreds of miles away, or he's flailing around someplace over a golf course. And uh, <laughs> uh, the kids are, are uh, in innumerable camps all around the country. Hey, by the way, uh, speaking of camps, I'd just like to uh, clear up a... Uh, a subject that's come up recently. I received, Jerry, did you see the note that I got? I received a letter from somebody uh, about a story which appeared in Playboy two years ago, a story which I I uh, wrote for the magazine, the one about Camp Nabawawanaki. Did you read that story? Okay. Well, I, I, I Camp Nabawawanaki, I got a letter from somebody and uh he, uh, it, was, it was a professor of some kind saying, he says, you read this story, and he said uh, he wanted to know uh, the, uh, the location of this camp. And uh, he wanted to know where it was. And, and uh, he, he, he says the reason he wanted to know where it was is that he would like to send his son, Cedric, to this camp. And uh, I don't know why he wanted to send Cedric to the camp there, or maybe he pronounced it Cedric. Probably that's true, since he was an associate professor. However, uh, he wished to send Cedric to Camp Nabawawanaki, and he wished to know the location of the camp. Well, now, there you go. I was, I was a little nonplussed, which uh, I'm quite often these days, nonplussed. And uh, I guess if you're... You know, that the, if you, I, I presume if you can become nonplussed, you can become plussed. that true? I haven't been plussed recently. I have been nonplussed recently. I suppose if you're plussed, you don't talk about it. If you're plussed, you just, uh, you know, you just get on your yacht and leave. Uh, that's the real plus people. But uh, if you're if you're nonplussed, you write about it. But uh, nevertheless, this guy wrote to me. He says, "Hey, wants to send Cedric or Cedric to uh, Camp Nabawawanaki." Well, I I, uh, I uh, was kind of embarrassed there because uh, I had to admit it's a fictional camp. Uh, let's put it this way, it's every camp. And uh, just like every man is not a true man, he's every man. I mean, you see the fine, subtle distinction there, don't you? Yeah, I thought you would, Al. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, I, I, I guess, you know, people who write fiction are continually bothered by this. People, people take them literally true. Today, you know, very few people come up and ask you about something you've written in the, in the magazine. I happen to be a fiction writer. Uh, come up to you, and rarely refer to your work as a short story. They call it an article. It's called an article. I guess uh, Moby Dick was a long article about fishing. Would you agree? Yeah? It's a long article. That's mm -hmm. true. War and Peace was a long article about, uh, you know, about the peaceniks and all that stuff, right? And, uh, so, <laughs> so he kind of, and, 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 and they get a little bug, you know, when you say, no, I don't write articles. Now, what is an article for the, you know, for the benefit the, of, uh, of the illiterate out there? There's a big difference between an article and a short story. Now, first of all, an article is about something specific. For example, it says, the real Joe Namath. Revelations about how Namath takes care of his hair 
in this month's Cosmopolitan, you know, that kind of thing. That's an article. Now, on the other hand, a, a short story is a, a short story. It's imagined. It's created out of imagination. You know, it's, it's spun out of whole cloth. So, uh, nevertheless, a uh, guy wrote to me and he says he wants to send uh, Cedric to Camp Wawa, Naba Wawa Naki. Well, uh, and then in the same mail, by coincidence, I get a letter from somebody from a camp who said uh, some camp like Camp Oskiwawa, someplace up in uh, Vermont. You know, there's millions of camps up there. Have you noticed the changing world in the camp? Camps no longer are just places where kids go to have fun. Oh, no, no, we're a very work-oriented society. We're a f- well, not work in the old sense of the work sense, you know, the old work ethic where people uh, chop down trees or they uh, build roads, that kind of stuff. We're now self-improvement-oriented, which is another form of work. It's another form of flagellation, uh, <laughs> which is very... See, our, 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 uh, our uh, let's say, our Judaic-Christian ethic of work, the work ethic, uh, is kind of outdated in a curious way when the great numbers of the population are are either on the welfare of one kind or another or going to school. School is in itself a form of welfare. Uh, once you pass uh, the age of about 20, 21, you know, you're, you're really in a form of welfare. Would you agree, Al? A form. And uh, don't take this as any kind of a value judgment. I'm just saying this happens to be the fact. One human being is, supported, is being supported by another in his endeavors. That becomes welfare. However, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the slight shift in our ethic is fascinating to me. That, uh, that the idea of a, of a, of a guy saying, I'm going to spend a whole summer chopping down trees in the Oregon coast. I'm going to be a lumberjack. Uh, the guys used to do this. You know, they, they'd say things like, uh, I'm going to uh, get a job for the summer working with my hands in a steel mill. And I remember, uh, as a as a guy who actually did that, I was I was in, working in the steel mill one summer, and the entire mill was filled with guys, romantic types, who had seen too many John Garfield movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, the you know Garfield was always with the white shirt, walking around with the with the uh, slouch hat, looking for work, as he always said. I'm looking for work. You've seen those movies, uh, the the nitty gritty movies of the period. Anyway, uh, the whole mill became suddenly inundated with large numbers of uh, sort of beefy uh, romantic college guys who were uh, experiencing real life. They, they, they came there and they got a job in the mill and uh, they were going to experience life, that is, for eight weeks. And uh, outside of that, you know, then to go back to uh, differential equations or whatever it is they came from. And uh, so, so there, there was a curious attitude, you know, around the, in the mill about that about these guys who were experiencing life. And uh, this, this is still holds true. Guys are you know, sailing off to uh, live for three weeks with the Bedouins, and they're experiencing life. Now, speaking of life, by the way, this is WOR New York. Hard, cold, life of reality and truth. And, uh, Al, uh, the truth of our business is this little 60-second thing here that's... Uh, about to be laid on you. Hit it on me. Very good. You sing it well. Can I sing with this one? Chocolate full of nuts is that heavenly coffee. Heavenly coffee. I sing it well, don't Heavenly coffee. Chocolate of nuts is that heavenly coffee. Better coffee millionaires money can't buy. Why is chocolate nuts known as the heavenly coffee? 
because it's made from a blend of the most flavorful coffees that money can buy. And now, Chocolanets has a decaffeinated coffee, 98% caffeine-free, which is made from the same blend of the world's finest coffee beans. Please try it and enjoy heavenly flavor in decaffeinated coffee. 98% caffeine-free. Your grocer has it, so ask for Chock Full of Nuts, 98% caffeine-free coffee. And have heavenly dreams, no matter how late you drink it. Oh, hello, hello. Oh, that, very good. That was nice, that was nice. Chock Full of Nuts is that heavenly... Oh, yes, yes, that is... Uh, we have to we have to put this down. Now, I know it's boring. I, I understand that, but uh, I, I love to read uh, the back pages of the New York Times during the summer. This is a great catalog of the uh, of the social history of our time. I think this is a this is what I call a silly section of the Times. It's great. You know, you can buy you can buy things like uh, oh uh, oh little things like. Um, surplus uh, submarine escape gear. You seen that stuff in the back there? <laughs> At last, a closeout price. It's uh, now available for the first time. Well, uh, I've seen that. You know, one of, the, one of the most exotic ads I've ever seen in the back pages of the Times, and when I tell people about this, they simply don't believe it, but, but it's a fact. I remember the ad. And it was, it appeared in the late... 50s or early 60s in the back pages. You know where they have all the uh, camping goods and the so-called uh, surplus stuff, and they have all kinds of things like uh, special closeout, gold-plated physician stethoscopes, uh, like a take-your-own pulse, that kind of stuff. You've seen that in the back pages there at the Times. Well, one of the most exotic ones I've ever seen is an ad, or was an ad, it only appeared once. And it was a it was a pretty good size one. It wasn't a little one. It was about uh, oh six inches by three inches, something like that. And it included a picture, a little cut. It was a picture of it. And it said, "Limited quantity available." It said, "Last time, sale of surplus Navy fighters." That is correct. Surplus Navy F. 6F fighters. Now, if you don't know what the F6F fighter is, there are still some being flown by people around, or was. The F6F fighter was the fighter that really gave hell to the Japanese. I mean, it was a, it was a aircraft carrier type fighter. It was a, a folding wing fighter built by Grumman, I believe, and a beautiful airplane. And they were offering these things in the Times, in the silly section of the Times, for twelve hundred bucks, twelve hundred bucks—that's fantastic. I mean, by, you, know, you can't imagine twelve hundred dollars. This airplane probably cost uh, close to uh, half a million dollars uh, to build. Well, uh, now of course they're much more expensive, but I'm talking about at the time it was built, which even then was a lot of money—half <laughs> a million dollars—and you could buy the airplane for twelve hundred dollars. And if you wanted to spend a little extra, I think they said uh, the twelve hundred dollars is without. Electronics, in other words, they take the radio stuff out of it. And if and outside that's a perfectly operating airplane, and there was a there was a little note on it says uh, it says the guns on the aircraft will be deactivated, which means it comes with the guns, but 
they're deactivated. They take out some, you know, the key parts of the thing or something like that, and you fly away from uh, this place and uh, just take it home. Well, now the airplane, uh, the airplane was available at Pensacola. It says you had to go down to Pensacola and pick out your airplane, pay the twelve hundred. That says must be cash. Was the Navy Department was selling this stuff? Must be cash, and you can fly all flyable. It says all flyable, all in uh, in uh, approved FAA condition. So you can come down there, put your two. No, these were not junkers. No, they were just simply surplus airplanes. And uh, I often wondered uh, how, how many people who read the Times went down there and picked up their F six F or their uh, fighter <laughs> and flew it out. <laughs> Uh, let's see, that was the Wildcat, I believe, wasn't it? What was the Hellcat? Wildcat, Wildcat. There were three cats, Hellcat, Wildcat, and Bearcat, which was the last one, the F-8. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I read that ad, see, and I, and I remember the day I'm, I'm, I'm reading the ad. I'm sitting, uh, waiting. Uh, this was back in the days when guys got haircuts. That's how long ago it was. Yeah, yeah guys actually went to, to barber shops and got haircuts. Yes, yes. It may boggle the imagination of some of you people, but there was a time when men went into places and got haircuts. Of course, the word has disappeared now. Uh, no longer does that phrase apply to uh, either species uh, of, of mankind. Humankind, excuse me. The human creature. Uh, men and women alike get uh, their hair styled, if they do it at all. They get it styled. Or they get it quaffed. As a matter of fact, well, no, that's gone, too. No, they're not going to go. They get it styled. There's a place down in the village where you can get it sculpted. And, in fact, uh, the guy, uh, Mr. Uh, Antoinette, I believe his name is, Mr. Antoinette. Uh, that name, by the way, is a totally fictitious name, but his name comes very close to that. Mr. Antoinette has a sign in his window. You might have seen it, Jerry. It says, uh, Hair Sculptor. Didn't say he's a, uh, a hair cutter or a hair doer, he, you come in and, and you provide the basics, see, for his work of art. And it's a called, a, it's a hair sculpture. It says, each work signed by the author and by the, by the artist himself. Now, I don't know how he signs it. Maybe he has your ear tattooed or something. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so this, this was so long ago in the dark ages. It was back in the days when guys' hair was cut. You know, they were, you doing? You say, give me a haircut. Give me a haircut, Jimmy. And uh, Jimmy would stand back and say, uh, well, how do you want it today? You remember? How do you want it? And uh, you'd have to tell him. Well, that was always a tough decision to make because, uh, you know, what do you say? I want a cut, you know. Uh, it, it always... So you'd fake it a little bit off the rear there and uh, kind of trim off the sides there a little bit. Uh, yeah, okay. And uh, and uh, take just a little off the top. Yeah, all right. And he'd start working around on the top. And then you'd sort of go into a semi-comatose state sitting in the uh, barber chair. You, did you ever go through that? You, you've had your hair cut, haven't you, Jerry? That was a long time ago, but you did. How about you, Al? You, of course, did. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, we all... Uh, yeah, well, back in the old feckless days, before you discovered the truth, that, uh, that, that, that hair is what life is about. Right? Uh, yes, they... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a pretty good line. That's uh, to many people it is. Uh, if you watch TV, you you begin to suspect that that's what it's about. Seriously, so nevertheless, I'm sitting in this barber chair, you know, and, and this guy named Jimmy is working around, and I've got the Times. I'm reading the Times funny section here, and uh, 
I said to Jimmy, I said, uh, hey, look at this. So what is it? I says, uh, you can go down to Pensacola, Florida, Jimmy, and pick up your own airplane for $1,200. What do you mean? I says, well, here, they're selling airplanes here. It says uh, F-6F Navy Fighter Aircraft in uh, flyable condition, guaranteed, uh, top-notch, FAA-approved condition. Um, you must fly it away yourself, though, it says here. It says, uh, fly it away. It says $1,200. Are oh, you kidding? I said, no, no, yeah, that's a typical New York reaction to almost anything. Ah, oh, come on, you're kidding. Uh, how many times have you heard this in your lifetime? Are you kidding? Well, I says, no, Jimmy, you can get an airplane for $1,200 uh, uh, down in Pensacola, Florida, and you fly it away, and uh, it'd be kind of nice to have one of them. So how, many can you, how many can you carry in it? I says, one. It's one. That's a fighter plane. You can't take, uh, you know, your cousins, your uncles, and everybody else in your fighter plane. It's one. Ah, who wants one of them? Well, that ended it for Jimmy. <laughs> so then a general discussion broke out in the barbershop as to, you know, about this. So there's a guy sitting there. You're about 15 guys waiting, you know. That was back in the days when guys used to actually wait to get their hair cut. You know, there used to be, uh, you know, like 18, 20 guys sometimes all lined up there all reading the papers. So, uh he was, uh, he was, uh, Jimmy had the kind of carrying voice that you could not uh, help but hear. And uh, in the next chair and the chair after that, and of course there were about nine guys working, you know, different barbers all working away there. And uh, Jimmy's uh, talking about the fighter planes, and immediately the guy next to me in the next chair said, uh, hey, let me see that ad. And I passed it over to him, and he's looking at this, and within five minutes the entire barber shop is talking about these fighter planes. That was one of the great things about barbershops. That kind of stuff would break out occasionally. Not too often, but it would break out. And so one guy who's quietly sitting over there by his, you know, just waiting, he's, he's uh, waiting for a haircut. He finally, uh, he's looking at the ad, and he, he laid the bomb on all of us. He said, uh, oh, he said, yes, the F6F. He said, gee, that's, uh, that's very, uh, very interesting offer. He said, uh, I fly those. So, so that's that's well worth the twelve hundred dollars, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> and so immediately everybody's interested. Say this guy turns out to be a Navy pilot, or uh, you know he was a Navy pilot that had just uh, gotten out of the Navy and he flew the F six Fs and the F six Fs and a few jets too. And uh, we got talking about the F six F and he said, uh, "Boy, he said you know that's that's a he says a lot of airplane." said, uh, according to the ad, uh, all you have to do is go down there and pick one up. You have a private pilot's license or a pilot's license, you can now pick one of these babies up. And uh, everybody's sitting there mulling this over in their mind. And, of course, a thing like that causes uh, a certain amount of uh, romanticism to suddenly develop in the mind of many males. It does not have to do with combat. It has to do with flight escape. Uh, you know, owning your own single-seater, high-performance fighter plane. Now that's that's a, you know that's that's a romantic idea. Now you may not even be a pilot, but it's still a romantic idea to own your own single-seater, lethal, uh, highly uh, highly dangerous fighter plane. Any one of those fighter planes were a handful of aircraft. You know, you just it's like owning a a, a man of war, 
a ship of the line. And uh, we sat there for about five minutes, the entire crowd in the barber shop just sort of mulling this over, saying, gee. And once in a while, a little sporadic re- remark would break out. Guys are all thinking about this owning a fire plane. Not, uh, am I getting the idea across what I'm saying here? It's not, it's not that everybody wanted to go off and had dreams of glory and fantasies and all that, but it's just a curious moment in a barber shop. It was hot out. You know, it's like midsummer. That's when that kind of stuff appears in the Times. And I wonder, n- nobody ever said anything about it. We all split, and that was the last time uh, I think it ever came up. I remember remarking uh, to a couple of other friends, and I said something, you know, friends of mine about this fighter plane ad, and they never saw it. They simply never saw that ad. I wonder if there's just a special race of men who see that kind of thing and who vibrate to that sort of thing. The others will see it, but not see it. Do you agree there may be such a thing, Jerry? <laughs> I mean, it's just it's a romantic. It's like, uh, it's like Robert Service says, there's a race of men that don't fit in. That's true. There is. And I think that race of men that don't fit in will vibrate to that kind of thing. You know who plays that, that type of role all the time in the movies or used to a great deal? was Robert Ryan. He was always playing these, these, these lone, hard-bitten men in a banana republic or in Burma someplace. For, for no reason, he's just simply there, and he's in a local jail. And he meets Ava Gardner. You can already see the movie. Ava Gardner, by the way, is the wife of a decadent planter in the area who is uh, obviously slimy, and he's kind of a fat guy, and he's dealing in... in uh, illicit arms to the natives, right? And uh, Robert Ryan shows up in a local pen. And, uh, well, you know, you, you you can write the plot. You know the whole thing. And he winds up being flown out of the jungle by by uh, Ronald Reagan, who's a bush pilot, whom they both run into. You know, they make that last flight. You've seen that flight through the mountains. Uh, this, uh, <laughs> this, this, this fantasy is always with people, and uh, uh, certain people, not all people. I think some men are born to be married. Other men are born to be what they are. And they can't figure out all their lives what they are. You buy that, Al? Now, I think there's a little of that in all of us. I mean, there's a little of both kinds in all of us. But it's the proportions that throw you. It's the proportions. And some guys can be married all of their lives, but secretly not married. I'm not talking about the, you know, such obviously trivial things as adultery and so forth. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about a mental state. There's nothing much to do with the physical. And uh, on the other hand, uh, you find people who are the opposite. You find guys that, that, that are incapable of, uh, of real uh, marriage. There's just simply no way. And they're not. And yet they romanticize over it all the time. Just like the guy who's married constantly romanticizes over being a lonesome traveler. He, he, he romanticizes this. They both romanticize, in other words, the other state. And uh, you can see that very clearly in Robert Service, for example. You know, the poet. Service wrote things like, uh, uh, well, the shooting of Dan McGrew, uh, the cremation of Sam McGee, great, uh, great epics of the far north. But he wrote a lot of poetry about that curious romanticism. Like, 
I remember uh, uh, one of his most famous poems was uh, the, the men that don't fit in, the breed that don't fit in. He started out, there's a breed of men that don't fit in, that have to, that have to hurt their kith and kin, that just have to move. And then at the end, he comes on with this, this very romantic thing, and they dream, he says, they, they dream always of a rose-covered cottage with a girl that's true. <laughs> you know, and this is an obvious fantasy. I mean, the idea of a rose-covered cottage and a girl that waits every night with the cookies baked uh, and has the slippers out. This is a this is a romantic concept of guys who can't conceivably ever make it. You know, they can't get married. They're not the married type. On the other hand, uh, you'll find the opposite fantasy. I wonder how many guys read, say, for example, Playboy and uh, fantasize about themselves. Just like uh, large numbers of housewives read, uh, say, Cosmo and fantasize about being this dynamic uh, woman executive in an elegant publishing office, and thousands of Mr. Smashings are after them, <laughs> and they, they, have their, they have their bachelor girl apartment on the Upper East Side. You know, you know the whole thing. And, and uh, these, these fantasies are, are always part of our lives. Can't can't escape it. And I remember sitting there reading that ad for that fighter plane, and thinking about this. And you know that ad has stuck in my mind ever since. I'm always hoping I'll see another great ad like that, but you never will, of course, uh, because uh, since the days of the F6F, the hardware has become so lethal and so complex that you're never going to see an ad that says a surplus F111s fly away uh, factory. You you pick them up now, twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> swing wing fighter available, you know, Mach, Mach 1.7 capability, that kind of thing. But the F-6F was, was, was a lot of airplane, don't kid yourself. And uh, nevertheless, the idea of, being, of going down there, picking up your fighter plane, say, I'll take that one there down by the end. The, the, the second one for the end, give me the second one for the end. The one with the big six on the side there, uh, you know. And the hopping in the cockpit, you know, and, and the revving it up, and the taxiing out to the line, and the pushing the canopy back, and curtly nodding to the to the to the line boy, and shoving that throttle to the firewall, <laughs> and roaring down that navy runway, and taking off at your F6F. This is a this is a a concept. Did I tell you about about a friend of mine though that did something like that once? I don't know why I bring all this up, but it all it's all involved in summer camps and all that. This is a you know summer fantasies. They're they're always there. But a friend of mine, uh, I saw this actually happen. I was I was going to school. I was going to to uh, university at the time, and uh, you know GI Bill the whole bit, and uh, I was. Uh, uh, incidentally, I, I have to clear up a, a lot of confusion. My army service came after World War II, not during, but after. So there were a lot of, uh, it, was, it was amorphous, kind of strange, amorphous world was. And uh, uh, it was, uh, the peacetime army is a curious army anyway. So nevertheless, after, after getting out, uh, there was a certain amount of restlessness and uh, kind of walking around time, you know, and going to the school. University. When all of a sudden uh, this guy came into my, you know, just a guy I knew in the in the dormitory, comes in the room. He says, "Hey," he said, uh, "He said, uh, how'd you like to go to Pittsburgh?" And I said, "Pittsburgh," <laughs> you know, that's a leading comment. We happened to be at, at that time at the university 
uh, the university, incidentally, in this case was Bloomington, it was Indiana U. So I said, Pittsburgh, what Pittsburgh? He says, well, a bunch of guys down on the first floor are going to Pittsburgh. I said, what for? He said, you wouldn't believe it. I says, well, what, what for? He says, well, they took up a pool. He says, these guys all uh, down, he says, about 20 of them uh, took up a pool, and they all chipped in uh, some dough, and you'll never guess what they'd done. I said, what did they do? He says, they bought a PT boat. I says, a PT boat? You know, you know what a PT boat is. Well, PT boat, you know, PT 109 and all that stuff. You know, this, uh, this PT boat, Mystique, you've seen the, you've seen PT boats in movies. So this is a lot of boat. Ooh, wow. And I said, where did he get a PT boat? He says, well, they were selling some brand new surplus PT boats <laughs> that they had somewhere in a, in a shipyard or something that, that finally the Navy decided to finally unload these babies. And they were selling them in Pittsburgh. And you had to go to Pittsburgh. These guys had already bought the boat. They bought it by wire or something, sent a deposit. And they were going to Pittsburgh to pick up the boat. Well, I said, gee, that's fantastic. PT boat. Unfortunately, I was having a very mean exam uh, the following Monday. So forget the trip to Pittsburgh. They were going to come back in this thing in a couple of days. They were going to go out there, pick it up, and over the weekend pilot the boat back down through the Ohio River. <laughs> and they were going to bring it down to Cincinnati. And they were going to, they were going to put it in, the, in, in somewhere or, or some marina or something in Cincinnati. Of course, they hadn't thought it out that well. You see, that's the problem with most fantasies. You hadn't thought it out that well. So, sure enough, these guys, the entire first floor was emptied over this weekend. And these guys took off to Pittsburgh. And they, they were driving there their Chevys and their Fords and hitchhiking every conceivable way to get to Pittsburgh. They were going to meet at the shipyard in Pittsburgh. Well, the following week arrived, and the guys began to dribble back into the barracks or into the, into the uh, dormitory one by one. <laughs> they began to dribble back. And, and it, it turns out that it had, had had. I wish, I, I'm sorry I didn't go. Have you ever missed something in your life, uh, a, uh, a, some kind of a fantastic uh, safari or something that you turned down because of some really mundane reason and you wish you had done it? Well, I wish I'd gone on that trip to Pittsburgh. Uh, I have no idea why they were being sold in Pittsburgh. That's all I remember they were Pittsburgh. And you had your choice of two PT boats, I heard later. One was something like 57 feet long for one price, and the other was something like 68 feet long for another price. That's the biggie. And they bought the big one, naturally. But the, the, the price differential was not that much. I, I think they only paid around $1,500 for this gigantic boat. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's what that surplus stuff was like, you know. Unbelievable prices. I mean, these things cost probably a half a million dollars to build. But they went down there and they got, they got this big PT boat. And so they, they took it out. Now, none of these guys had had any experience piloting anything remotely like that. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of boat. And, and uh, you know, that's the problem with boats even today. You don't need a driver's license to drive a boat. Uh, you don't. You can go down and buy yourself a, <clears throat> you know, big 74-foot criss craft and uh, take it out. That's the end of it. That's why a lot of guys get into trouble. And so these guys began to come back on the river. Well, first of all, uh, they never estimated in their mind. Again, this is the way fantasies begin to go downhill. 
they had no concept of how much fuel this thing burned. And I want to tell you that the type of engines that this baby had in it, it burned fuel. I mean, if you think a, a, a 747 uh, burns fuel, this baby was burning fuel like a 747 that needed a good valve job. <laughs> I mean, it was burning fuel. And it, it, it cost them something like, they said fill it up, you know, they said, fill the tanks up. It cost them something like 1200 bucks just to fill the tanks up with the fuel. Which they were really rocked, you know. They they this this right away for starters, right off the dock. They had to put fuel in it, and uh, that meant another twelve hundred. So they got the baby out into the stream, and they began to come down, down the river. Well, uh, they they went fine, from what I understand. For about the first twelve hours, they're going fine. They just keep it right in the middle, you know. Every time something's coming at them, they go to the right, you know. And then and then then they made the the classic mistake. They. They, uh, they're, they're, the kid is that is operating the throttles uh, said that, gee, I wonder what this baby will do. And he shoves the throttles forward. And the one thing that the PT boat, the PT craft could do, it could take off like Billy be damned. It went. I mean, that boat had about, it would go about 60 miles an hour, you know. These motors started to dig in, and they go whipping down the river somewhere outside of Louisville. And they are sending waves to the either shore that are like tidal waves. Within five minutes, every Coast Guard craft for miles around is, is zeroing in on these guys. Helicopters are flying over them. And they, they panicked. The guy didn't know quite how to get this thing under control. And they finally got the thing back down. And by that time, the boat is slewing sideways down the river at about 40 knots. <laughs> and it's sending waves. Houseboats are being washed up into towns all around them, and birds are arising out of swamps, and people are screaming, and towns are being swept out to sea. And they impounded the boat. The Coast Guard impounded this boat, and and uh, they took it. They towed it in. They took it into tow, and they 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 laid a uh, they laid some kind of a summons on all these guys. And now they were slowly straggling back into school. I mean, totally dead broke. Half of them had wired home for money to buy the fuel. They were in hock for the next four years. Their boat was impounded by the Coast Guard. They were afraid of it then. Then they began, they were sitting around talking about it, and they all had a great fear of this boat now. And I never know, never knew what happened with that boat. And, and the, somewhere there are guys today who still remember the day they bought the PT. But whatever happened with the boat, I don't know. But that it was a curious moment in, in time. And, you know, you run into these fantasies all the time. People have them all the time. Uh, and the fantasies have to do a lot with things like summer camp. You know that I'm a, practically every summer camp now today uh, says uh, summer camp to lose weight. A poor kid is there, you know, he's, he's on a diet. <laughs> His camp is there. He's not there for fun. He's there to lose weight. Uh, then there's the camp says uh, uh, pass algebra next year. Yes, Camp uh, Alpha Delta Omega, the algebra camp. And a poor little slob is going to be working on algebra all summer. See, that's the new worth ethic. The new worth ethic, work ethic, the new work ethic is, is self-improvement. And the fantasies remain. This little kid who's actually Einstein learning to play the fiddle at Camp Nabawawanaki. But uh, somewhere... <laughs> 
someplace, there is that mythical country where Robert Ryan is always slowly walking down a dusty road with his coat over his, over his shoulder, his hat pushed back on the back of his head. And Ronald Reagan is waiting to fly him out in a gull-winged Stinson after he meets Ava Gardner at the plantation. Or they grow rubber or some amorphous thing. And the natives come and stand around outside the house and sing native folk songs. Fighter points, $1,200. Oh, incidentally, did you know that there's a summer camp now out on the West Coast, naturally, that says summer camp. And it's called Camp Libido. It says, do you want your child to grow up with sexual hang-ups? Do you want your child to grow up a sexual incompetent? Send them to Camp Libido. And uh, co-educational and workshop and laboratory sessions will be held. Ages 7 through 18. Both sexes. <laughs> WOR New York. Next, John Wingate and Nightbeat. Fourth of July coming up. And if you could do it the way you wanted to, where would you like to travel? You're like me. You can't do it the way you want to. Okay. I'll lay out the journey for you. From 